ACNFers, I had pondered putting up a new pod, but I'm in a mad dash scramble of writing these days, and I simply don't have the time or the bandwidth to produce a new hardback episode. So you get a new paperback release. That's fun. This one features the writer Matt Bell. This episode originally ran back on March 4th of 2022, so almost two years ago. He was on the show to talk about his incredible craft book, Refuse to Be Done. Highly recommend this for your DIY MFA bookshelf, okay? All right, that's it. Please enjoy this fresh paperback podcast, the kind you can stick in your back pocket. I love those, baby. Here we go. A day where I wrote is better than a day where I didn't. It makes me feel more like myself. It makes me feel like a person. So, you know, I'm not a factory. I don't like to overfocus on like the productivity end of it. But I, I do think that if I can, um, if I can stay there until something fun happens, I can stay there until something entertaining happens. Stay there until I get in touch with a thought or a feeling I, you know, didn't quite have my head around. Um, I just feel better the rest of the day. Like. Oh, this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. This non-award-nominated podcast is a sp- <laughs> it's where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. How's it going? Matt, for whom the bell tolls, is here. You know Matt Bell, right? He's primarily a novelist, but he's got a new craft book out called Refuse to be Done, How to Write and Rewrite a Novel in Three Drafts. It's published by Soho. But Brendan, I thought you were a nonfiction podcast, man. Like, what the fuck? Uh, Honestly, like, who would even ask that anyway? But listen, Matt's book here can apply to any work of nonfiction, any crafting of a book, I would say especially memoir. It's a book of skills to work on. And the more skills we, that we can put into our arsenal, the better we get at this morass we call writing. Plus, bending out of nonfiction, I find, helps my nonfiction. I know that. I know, I know me, man. Does that mean there might be some novelists on the show in the future? Time will tell, you filthy animals. I really love this book. You come away feeling like, shit. Writing a book is hard work, but it's good work. And by good work, I mean it's nourishing. That brings me to a point about writing, and I don't know why I feel like saying this, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know how people like to say, I write to make sense of the world. I spun that phrase in my head for years, like a lozenge, and I'm like, that's fucking stupid. I'm sorry if you subscribe to that sentiment, but writing doesn't make the world make sense. Uh, at least not for not for me. Maybe it's just because I'm a I'm a two bit idiot. The Metallica right for whom the bell tolls. To make sense of the world <laughs> to make sense of the world? Hell no. You know why I write? For the most part, because not writing fucking sucks. You know, it sucks worse than not doing it. So I don't find writing torture. I find it challenging and difficult and demoralizing, especially the more skilled you get, the harder it seems to get, which is really frustrating. But anyone who makes it out to be anything more than using words and putting them in order and using punctuation and somewhat acceptable grammar, 
is overthinking it. Whew, wow. I usually don't go on rants at the top of the show, but that one really boiled my potato. All right. Before we get to Matt, let's do a little bit of housekeeping. CNFers, I want to remind you to keep the conversation going. That's Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram. You can also support the podcast by becoming a paid member at patreon.com. Listen, I know. Podcast is free. And you're like, why would I, why, why do I shell, shell out money? Even if it's two bucks, it's like, it's definitely something most of us can afford. And a lot of podcasters ask uh, audience to be like, Hey, you know, consider doing this. And you're still like, yeah, but the podcast comes out anyway. What am I really gaining? I understand it's hard. So window shop around. Cause there are some perks and some things coming down the pipe, free ways to support the show. You can always leave kind reviews our ratings on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, written reviews for our little podcast that could go a long way towards validating it for the wayward CNFer. We got a nice little flood of written reviews, and uh, I've I've read all the new ones, so I won't read any more here. But the more they come in, the more that come in, the more I will read them and give you credit for them. Like I said, they they help out immensely. And given the size of the show, the amount of ratings, and the amount of written reviews of those ratings, the percentage is like astronomically high, which is so cool. And I'm so grateful for that. Very, like, seriously. I, see, yes, yes, you. I'm, I'm serious. I'm not. Wipe that smile off your face. Uh, Matt Bell. You can find him at. MDBell79 on Twitter, MattBell.com. He's the author of At Last Count. Hank, what do you... Intern. I don't trust Hank right now. He's bitter. Intern says 4,562 novels, including Appleseed, Scrapper, A Tree, or A Person, or A Wall. He is, as I like to say, wicked smart. And Matt came to play ball. It's all you can ask for with a guest, and man, he he brought it. And there are so many golden nuggets of writerly wisdom that will surely energize your practice. So show notes to this and a billion other episodes in my up to 11 monthly newsletter can be found at brendanomero.com. Hey, hey, once a month, no spam, can't beat it. So let's do this. Let's get into episode 305. Ready? Riff. Some uh, kind of a lighthearted, uh, kind of fun question that I've been posing to some people of late is, uh, you know, what is the the strangest thing that you've Googled? Oh God, <laughs> it's so hard to say. I mean, I feel like you know, I uh, worked as a book editor too for a long time, and I and I remember working on a, a book by Eugene Martin that had uh, was partly about uh, the electric chair and uh, Xerox repair and homemade nuclear weapons and Holocaust denial. And I just had this period where I was doing like all this just fact checking, like as I was doing it, where I was like, this is like a serial killer kind of like Google <laughs> history, right? Like I'm like really doing some like dark stuff. It was a pretty dark book. And you just have that like, if anyone ever just looked at this slice of my life where I got super interested in this pile of stuff for like two weeks, right? It'd be a very weird slice of my, uh, I, I have no idea what my Instagram ads were like then, right? You know, just like a <laughs> no bizarre <kidding. laughs> time. Yeah, I, um, 
I was listening to a long form podcast uh, several years ago, and there was uh, one person like similar to what you're saying. They're like, if you looked at my Google alerts, you know, you'd see like you know severed limbs, you know, all right. sorts of cryptic, creepy, gnarly things because that's a lead domino for for some reporters out there looking for certain mm. kinds of stories. So mm. like they're getting pings for those kind of things to then pursue those stories so yeah it's a very right. like a grim story search and a grim way of finding narrative yeah. out there <laughs> i can't imagine being on the the severed limb beat that feels like oh a, uh like trying to get to that faster than anybody else feels like i mean i know that's sort of like journalism at a certain level but like it does seem like a tough racket to want to have alerts <laughs> yeah. about <laughs> yeah absolutely and uh you know it was it was cool I, I read this morning too your um your essay about creed in uh, mm-hmm. my own prison, which was really, really fun. And like, you're just a, a little bit older than I am. You're about a year older than mm-hmm. I am. And so we, a lot of our pop culture and grunge aesthetic really overlapped mm-hmm. in, in the nineties. And it was um, really cool to read that. And especially here, just to hear you like sort of band drop, name drop, uh, some like live and everything like yeah. throwing copper. My God, that, that album, I listened to that so much in the nineties. I don't know about you. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is like deeply formative, right? You know, yeah. uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, in that piece, too, it got me it got me thinking, too, because I, I, I know I was in eighth grade when uh, Cobain uh, died by mm-hmm. suicide. You probably were a freshman in high school, I imagine, like 94. Yeah. Um, uh, what is I can point to that as probably the the first sort of very formative celebrity death that I ever mm. encountered. Um, I wonder about you. Like, well, what's the the biggest celebrity death that you remember most from your formative years? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me, too. That does seem like um, outsized, right? Like, I sort of remember, like, uh, and I went to, like, a small high school, and I don't know that everybody was, like, you know, uh, like super, super into that kind of music from rural Michigan, although it was, was on the radio. Right. But, um, but I can remember people like, like weeping on the bus, right? Like that kid who yeah. had like the Rolling Stone issue that came out after he passed away and just like holding on to the bus. And like, you know I mean? It, and I, I, yeah, I don't think I'd really seen that from my peers before. Right. Um, I don't know when princess Diana died, but in that like vague life stage, I think that was the other thing I remember, yeah. uh, which had very little resonance for me. In a, I just wasn't that aware of that kind of thing, but I remember it being like a big deal, you know, like a sort of, yeah, it was sort of an early shared experience, right? Where you have that, like a lot of people are having the same experience kind of thing. Absolutely. Now, I understand that uh, er- early in your writing career, at least when you were really trying to get some traction, uh, you were also, you were writing around uh, being a, a restaurant manager. Sure. So, you know, talk a little bit about that and, uh, you know, the fire that was burning inside you to, to write amidst having a, a day job that, you know, takes a lot of your bandwidth and your energy sure. away. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I uh, was sort of a serial undergrad dropout. So, I, you know, went to three universities and graduated when I was, I was 26. And um, and so mostly I, I waited tables and bartended and, and, and eventually managed restaurants for, for about 10 years um, until I started grad school. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I like doing that, too. I was pretty good at it. You know, like I think uh, in some ways, um, my ability to, to banter like this kind of developed there. So that's good. I was a little more, yeah. you know, interior. But, yeah, I was always reading a lot. I was always writing from from probably through that whole time from my early 20s, especially. And right before I went to grad school, I uh, really started trying to develop that like um, – uh, steady writing habit. You know, I, I initially started out trying to write five days a week, two hours a day, and I would 
put it on the calendar, you know, I'd get my restaurant manager schedule for a month, right? And I'd put on it like my writing schedule as well. So that it felt like it was part of my job in that way too. I feel like that was actually like pretty essential. Like I learned maybe more in the first year of just writing regularly than I did from a lot of classes I took, right? Like sort of like you just, if you write all the time, you get past your stuff and into like the next thing that you're trying to do. And it felt like I progressed very quickly in that phrase. Yeah. And you took the word learn right out of my, right, plucked it right out of my brain. Uh, what did you, in, during that time, uh, what did you learn about yourself and what it takes to have that kind of rigor mm. to create this kind of work? Oh, you know, I think some of it, it's always hard to remember, right? It's starting to be a long time ago, but I think some of it was, uh, I was, I was writing a novel at the time that, um, I did write a draft of that, you know, is not a very good and no one ever really saw. Um, but, uh, even just learning that, like the way the words will pile up if you just consistently make in that way, right? You know, sort of, um, you can get a lot done in 10 hours a week, you know, uh, oh, and yeah. sort of being able to yeah. see that. Um, and I also think when you write consistently, you get past your defaults pretty fast. You get past your, uh, the idea of like only writing when you have inspiration or only writing when you have like a clear idea. If you write 10, 15 hours a week, you will run out of ideas and then you will have to write anyway. And then you've learned like, stuff comes, stuff's there. Like if you just sort of, if you continue to sort of work, um, that happens this morning, I sat down, worked on my novel and was stuck somewhere. And I was like, I'm just going to start over in a different part of the book and wrote all this stuff. I had no idea existed. Right. And it was like, just by being willing to sit in the chair for my two hours and like, you know, touch the keys, you get in these interesting places. And I, I feel like that lesson continues to pay off immensely. Like the sort of willingness to be there for it means the muse comes, you know? I think Seth Godin has written about how like you don't wait for like you write yourself into flow. You don't wait for flow to happen in order to then start writing. So it's just right. a matter of sitting down there and you don't have writer's block. You just start typing and then right. eventually, you know, eventually things will start to come to you that you would not have even thought of before. You just alluded to right. it like just through the process of it, it's like, oh, wow, that where did that come from? But mm -hmm. you wouldn't have got there if you didn't just have sort of that discipline to just sit down and write a bunch of bad words. And eventually, you know, good stuff has to come out of it eventually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I mean, for me, you know, one of the reasons to do it is, of course, to get books done. But one of the other reasons yeah. is just like uh, a day where I a day where I wrote is better than a day where I didn't. It makes me feel more like myself. It makes me feel like a person. So, you know, I'm not a factory. I don't like to overfocus on like the productivity end of it. But I, I do think that if I can, um, if I can stay there until something fun happens, I can stay there until something entertaining happens, stay there until I get in touch with a thought or a feeling I, you know, didn't quite have my head around. Um, I just feel better the rest of the day. Like it's, you know, um, I got my writing today right at the end of my session. Like I really needed to get out the door to do something. I like left 15 minutes late because I finally got into the thing. And I was like, so glad I stayed with it until I got there um, to to be doing this, not having had that would be harder, you know, to that point of how, how it just feels nourishing to, mm -hmm. to to do do that work. Like the last few days, too, like I'm working on, um, you know, just a you know sample chapter that I'm hoping will be about. I don't know, 15 pages or in the neighborhood of 3000 words or maybe a little longer, a little shorter uh, for a book proposal. And the last few days, like the, you know, I had done like 500 and yesterday was about 600 words. And I'm and it just when I was done with that, I'm like, holy shit, that felt that was great. I know it's like kind of garbage. needs a lot of rewriting and revising, mm -hmm. but like that felt awesome. Like that was cool. It's like so energizing. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, um, yeah, if I get, have to go a couple of days where I don't get to write, like you, I, the lack of that, I also feel, I just feel like a little, um, 
I don't know. Yeah. Energizing is a good word. Like I feel a little thinner. I always think of it like my thoughts feel yeah. thinner. Um, you know, I just don't feel as sort of like awake. Um, same if I'm not reading well, right? If I'm reading books that I'm not enjoying or I'm not reading, I just, I, I don't know. I think reading and writing, like, I almost feel like they make me a person. Like I feel like a little narrow <laughs> without them. Like there's not enough bandwidth in my sort of, I don't know, like default brain and heart without sort of an influx and, and output of art. Yeah, and you, you write in the book, too, about uh, reading alongside the writing. And now you kind of note how some people don't like to necessarily read their influences while they're generating pages. Yeah. And uh, and uh, I think there's something like a, a threat of voice creep is what I sure. like. Maybe if you're reading yeah. someone else, you're like, okay, they're they're going to be a little too uh, forward in your writing. But you, were, you took the opposite stance. Like you need those influences with you when you're generating pages. So how do you put a firewall between at least the voice of those influences with your voice as you're generating pages. I mean, I think I don't, so maybe that's part of it, but I, you know, I think, um, I mean, some of it is, uh, like the people who seem the most unique to me as writers, I, I think if those of them I had the luck to get to know part of their uniqueness comes from like the breadth of their influence. They're just influenced by so many people that you can't single it out, you know, and that feels, so that's part of it, right. To, to always have stuff coming in means that, it's going to sort of work out. Um, I do think also like the only time I, I'd really be worried about voice creep if I planned on doing no revision. Cause I just think like, especially in a novel, like over the course of a couple of years, like you're going to layer so much other stuff on it. You're going to rewrite things so many times, like things either become yours or you, or you have to get rid of them, you know? But I, I don't think reading like uh, Corm McCarthy on like one day of my novel is going to mean this chapter is always going to sound like Corm McCarthy. Like yeah. that doesn't, that just doesn't seem true to me, to my experience. Um, so voice creep over uh, like a day or two is not even, even if I was worried about it, I don't think it's a real issue over the course of like rewriting a novel. As you were sitting down and you had this idea to write a book on writing, what were some of the the influences just from a from craft book point of view that were, that, you know, that influenced you and, and gave you the, the grist for the mill to want to pursue this on your own? Sure. Yeah, I read a lot of craft books. I really like craft books. Um, uh, I, when I first started teaching writing, you you find your own limitations pretty quickly as a person who can explain things or have examples. Um, and I, I felt like uh, I'd always read them. And then when I started teaching, I read a lot more of them. Um, and there are some I really like, you know, that I think uh, stylistically, maybe some of that. Um, there's two by the by Tin House, the Writer's Notebook 1 and 2. There are some examples drawn from in, in my book as well that are really collections of lectures that were given at the Tin House Writer's Workshop. Um, and so they're very, like, conversational, right? And they're very practical. And I and I think that um, that mode makes a lot of sense to me. It's less textbooky, right? I think uh, Benjamin Dreyer's Dreyer's English, you know, is a, a fantastically built, welcoming, sort of warm book about, you know, grammar really in style. And I, I definitely looked at that as I was writing it, thinking about how it was structured, probably because that book is structured and sort of um, has different parts for different things. And I thought like it, it worked really well, but you feel like it, you feel like you're hanging out with Ben when you're reading it. You feel like you're with mm -hmm. him and his warmth. And I think if you can try to make like an on page version of the person you are in the classroom, that seems to make a lot of sense, better than like pretending to be something else. Right. So like trying to sort of have it in that mode seems important to me. Yeah, hopefully it's like a smarter version of the person I am in school, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, the, the, the more polished version right. of yourself, the, ho <laughs> the hologram version that you can just like put up there and it's uh -huh. like, okay, that's, the, <laughs> that's it. Um, it. What was the, 
you know, the, the challenge for you to kind of carve out your own, your own space amidst like the, mm. the craft, you know, uh, the craft, uh, the craft bookshelf, if you will. Yeah. You know, uh, it's funny because, of course, when you do like the the book proposal part, or you want to talk to your agent about it. You have to do a little of that, like, here's why it's different than everybody else. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but you know, I think the reason this book grew out of a craft talk that I I uh, used to give quite regularly that um, itself kind of grew out of my own needs. Like, I if there had been a book like this about how to revise novels, I wouldn't have had to write one, right? So, like, the the sort of development of this material really came out of feeling like there wasn't like a comprehensive, like very practical book about revision. Um, interestingly, in the last like month or two, I think a couple other like books on revision have come out. So maybe there was like a hole that other people <laughs> are filling. Uh, Peter Ho Davies just had one come out uh, in the Art of Series from Grey Wolf, which so far, I've only had a chance to dip into it, but I really like. Um, very different approach, but like Peter Ho Davies is great. It's really smart. Um, so it's good that there's sort of things around that. But I really did feel like revision is something that we were sort of taught that we needed to do but we're not taught how to do for the most part and so hopefully this is the result of me teaching myself how to do it and, and how to do it you know kind of throughout the whole process and that will be useful to other people as well and Allison K. Williams came out with a, a, a great book on editing a, a few months ago called uh, Seven Drafts and subtitle of sorts. Nice. And, uh, and, and yours hinges on three drafts primarily. Sure. So, so what is, uh, how, how do you delineate when a, when a draft is done? And then, you know, then there's always like kind of the little like sub drafts sure. within the draft. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, how did you, how did you arrive at that? In particular, yeah, and and you know, as you know from reading the book, the three drafts is really like three stages, right? And just you know, yeah. for cover pithiness reasons, drafts is the right word, but but I, I do think you know the three that I sort of focus on the book, which are you know sort of like the generative draft of like a first uh, exploratory draft, um, a sort of narrative revision draft, where you focus on plot, and then this sort of polishing revision of the third do you feel like the three big phases of work for me like you know it but um you know my novel apostate i think the last draft is number number draft nine in my files right you know so like it's squishy right yeah. um but these might be the three drafts before you send it to an agent or an editor or like your you know it's sort of like the three drafts that get me as far as i can go on my own which might be where that metric actually is how do you know when a draft is done uh you know i think one way to think about it, I think inside this book, the way to think of it is like, this is like the farthest uh, you can go with the process you're doing here. Like another process is needed for like this next draft. I think there's also a version of drafting that is like a, a new draft is like a new time you would show it to somebody else. And there is that kind of draft too. There's like the, at the end of these three drafts for me is when I send it to my agent then there's maybe like an agent draft and then there's the draft you do with your editor and the draft you do with your copy editor and the draft you page proof draft. And like there, you know, I do think there can be a, like when it goes to a new person and you complete that process with them, that's one way of thinking about drafts as well. And when I was re reading the book too, I just got a sense of the, the Titanic amount of attention that you pour into, you know, one particular book and how, mm. how challenging it must be over time to try to come at your own work with fresh eyes somehow because you know given the attention that you that you advocate for to give to the to each phase of that process so how, how have you come to the page with fresher eyes as each iteration of your book is manifesting 
you know, some of it is just uh, putting other things between the drafts, right? You know, uh, that you're writing other things, you have other things to work on. So you, you do get these breaks from it. You know, there, there have been phases where I do not have other books coming out. But, you know, like the book I'm writing now, I started when Appleseed was on uh, submission. And so I went through that whole editorial process while also writing this novel that I'm working now. I finished Refuse to Be Done during that process. And so you're kind of bouncing back and forth between projects. Sometimes it gives you fresh eyes by itself. It creates other challenges like, what was I doing when I stopped? But, uh, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I, I do think some of it in the novel specifically, weirdly, is that it's very, very hard to hold the whole novel in your head. Um, oh, for sure. The, you know, my last novel was uh, the final version of it in print is like 500 pages. The one I'm working at now is right now longer than that. I don't remember tons of it. Right. So you sort of you can go back. I can go to a different part of the book with fresh eyes because I haven't seen it in six months, you know. Um, so even inside the book, there's a lot of like taking a break from things and coming back to things. Um, so it can be pretty fresh. Um, I think the other thing is really what I advocate for in like the third draft part of the book is like these kind of. Uh, like layered approaches to revision that so rather than trying to be like make the whole book good which feels daunting and uh and kind of a grind it's like um i'm just gonna do a pastor work in the dialogue i'm just gonna do a pastor work on chapter openings or something and that kind of it breaks things out of their expected order in certain ways or it allows you to see things divorced from their context that can make it feel newer and i think that's a way of like staying enthusiastic as you go but yeah it's i mean there's always going to be low parts writing a book i mean i think it's it's just doing anything for a couple of years will sometimes be boring, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah and, <laughs> oh yeah. And, and you know, the, those messy middles of the draft, like right when you've passed the honeymoon period of how excited you are about the thing. Yeah. And then you're in that trough of, Oh man, is this just garbage or am I, it most likely is um, at that time. <laughs> um, but are you just, is like the energy of the honeymoon period, has it just waned and I just have to endure or is it really right. bad? So it's like, um, you know, how, how have you managed to garner momentum in that middle part to, to, to push through and to get to the, get to the shoreline? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I was, there's certainly something to be said just for not quitting. You know, I think, uh, uh, the difference between having 90% of a draft and a hundred percent of a draft is like the whole game, right? Like if you have a whole draft of a book, you have something to work with. And when you have part of one, you, you don't, I think, um, uh, especially people writing their first book, you know, like if you can get all the way to the end, no matter what it is, you, you, you're in like a completely different place as a writer forever for having finished yeah. that first manuscript. Yeah. So I think there's some push just to do that. I, I also think that uh, I've learned over the years that the parts where you feel bored or distant from it are not even a sign that you're writing poorly. Like uh, when I was writing my first novel, there was a month, it took me like a year to write the first draft. And like say month six, month seven, I uh, was like, I'm so bored. Is this good? What am I doing? But I just kept writing my, you know, couple hours a day. Um, and I thought when this is all done, I'm going to look back at this part. And it's going to be so bad. I'm going to do so much work here. And then when it was when it was over and I reread the draft, I couldn't even really identify where that part was, right? It was more or less as good and as bad as the rest of the book. Your own uh, evaluation of your work day is not usually a good mm -hmm. sign of how good of a job you had, right? Or how good job yeah. you did. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh it's so it's so hard to, you know, especially when you're in that middle part to then maybe not 
be seduced by a shiny new thing. Like, yeah. like when it's starting to get hard, you're like, oh, I have this other idea. Why don't there, there is something to be said for another sandbox, maybe just to unplug mm-hmm. and maybe play, play somewhere else. Yeah. But then it's, it's a, an, an, a thing entirely different to then be like, okay, am I just trying to avoid this or should I just push through? Like there's, there's so much value in finishing something. Right. And so few people, I think, like you were saying, like so few people finish things. Like I think even if it's, it doesn't, even if it's not published, even if it doesn't see the light right. of day, I think there's just so much value in, in lessons learned from just learning to finish, you know, and then worry about externalities after that. But my gut, my goodness, the lesson that comes from finishing is so important. Yeah. Yeah, I you know I wrote uh, two novels before my first novel, one of which I never showed anybody. One I wrote with like a writing group, and uh, so they saw lots of it, but probably not all of it. And neither of them I really tried to do anything with. I, I sort of knew they were practice novels to some extent, although I took them really seriously when I was doing them, right? Um, but yeah. I, I sort of knew they weren't um, they weren't the real thing. But I think having that experience of having written that much meant that when it was time to write the real first novel in that middle part, it was just, I mean, I knew I could type a hundred thousand words. Like that wasn't the issue. Right. And so I don't think I felt that, that same, I wasn't daunted just by the task of like making that much stuff. You know, I'm, I'm teaching a novel writing class right now uh, where I make students start from, from zero. They all start from scratch and they write together and they have to write so much a week. And, you know, the idea is that they'll go through the stages of novel drafting kind of as a group and hit the same walls and the same excitements. But really, by the time they hit like 50 pages, you know, these are MFA students, most of them have never had something that's 50 pages long before. You know, when they get to 100, it's like it's just all uncharted territory. And it's it can be really exciting and it can be really daunting. But uh, but I think for me, it's more exciting than it's not. Right. There is that time every time you get into that that hard middle is still like, well, I'm in, I'm committed. I'm in this, like, I'm in the mess. And it's, it's kind of a, I don't know, if you learn, can live with the uncertainty, it can be a joy. I, I think uh, an important point to underscore, and this came, I was first, this first came to me when I was doing my MFA a while ago. And I, you know, I was shopping around this, this book of, you know, narrative nonfiction. I, it just, it wasn't getting any nibbles at all. And I was just like hitting my head up against a wall. And a mentor of mine said, he's like, well, Brendan, sometimes we write books and they, and they don't get published. It's just the way it is. And it's sometimes it's when you've spent years on something and you've worked that hard on it, it can be very hard pill to swallow to just be like, you know, it, it might not be published, but at least, you know, you had the experience of writing the book and you are, mm-hmm. it wasn't wasted. The work wasn't wasted. I wonder if you've run into that with your own work and maybe with your with your students where you have to say like listen you might finish a book and it might not be published and that sucks but you're still you're still a book better for your next book absolutely yeah yeah yeah, absolutely i um i have been lucky uh that the the novels i've tried to sell i have sold um which is a is a good thing but um uh i have a lot of like 100 150 page novel starts that didn't turn out, you know, uh, between In the House and Scrapper, I wrote two like starts like that between Scrapper and Appleseed, I wrote four. I assume now I have to write like eight before I get to the next real novel, you know, there's, um, and, uh, and some of those were just things that I, uh, that just, they didn't have the legs to be a novel, right? They were never going to be ones. Uh, at least one I flinched from in a like, is this the right book for me to be writing, which is, I just feel sad about it. I sort of lost it for no reason except my own 
insecurity. I lost one book because I, I, as I did the research and was writing, I just realized I was out of my cultural depth, that it was like something that I shouldn't write. And, uh, but that one, especially like I learned so much writing that book and like, I did like thinking and, um, and feeling that was really important to me, like as a person and in my approach to the world. And I, I think if I hadn't written that half a novel that never became a thing that I spent like a year on, right. I'd be a different person right now. And I, I, I don't know. I feel that was a valuable experience even if it was a waste of time in like another metric, right? But it was no way a waste of time. Right. And you write to the, you know, what whatever keeps you writing, that's the number one rule yeah. of the yeah. first draft. So, yeah. you know, how it's such a, a such a simple declarative thing to say, but it's like it's uh it's it's very hard to do. So what keeps you writing during that first draft when uh when that's what you need to do is just just keep going. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I focus a lot on my own uh, my own enjoyment in that. Like, what do I want to be doing? What I want to be writing? Um, I don't worry a lot about whether the pieces are going to make sense or if they're built right um, at that stage. I mean, I'm always trying to write the best I can, but like that could mean a lot of different things in any given day. You know, um, I think days where I uh, where I amuse myself or I put something weird in a book that makes you go like, ah, like who you know who came up with that you know that sort of feeling of sort of uh surprise that you had something in you that that is really great certainly um uh a day where you come up with some language you're really excited about can can power you for a long time i think you know it's usually a good sign when i'm out like for a run the next day and i'm still like in the book and i'm still feeling it and i can sort of feel that my brain's working on something i have having ideas i feel really close to it but i don't know i think there's lots of ways to stay excited about it i think really one of my favorite or I don't even know if it's a trick. Like one of the things I find sustaining is that there's often in an, even an early draft, which is a mess and incomplete, there'll be like some part of it that's like, feels like how I want the final book to feel. Or I'm like, if a whole book felt like that, I'd be really excited. Um, I can remember in, in Scrapper, there was like a one paragraph scene where the two main characters were like playing old arcade games in a bar in downtown Detroit and, uh, and just day drinking. Right. And I was like, Oh, like the, like the way this like scene feels like when the book all feels like this, I'll be done. And I would just go and read that like when I didn't know what I was doing. And it was just sort of like um, like a touchstone of like you're capable of doing this thing. And, and if you just keep trying, you will make more things that feel like this. Oh, that's great the, to to find that kind of that's the tonality you're going for. And, and it's yeah. it's so it, it almost ethereal like it's a guitar coming mm -hmm. into tune like you yeah, can't really yeah. put your finger on it it's just one of those things where like oh that was one more one more crank mm -hmm. in the, the mm -hmm. string you're like oh okay that's what right. it sounds like my god yeah. that that sounds pretty good now we just need to keep the tuner there and, and keep going yeah. with that <laughs> i think that's right it really is like a tuning fork paragraph right like it's like a yeah. place you can go back to like find your your sort of bearings and it's almost always like inconsequential for me it's not load bearing it's not a plot point right it's just like something about the language and the and the way characters are interacting or the way the setting you know the i mean it's really like a thing of tone or 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 um uh, vibe in a certain way, right? Like if, like if I can make it so it feels like this, this is the kind of book I would want to spend time with, you know? Oh, for sure. And I love the, the quote, one of the several quotes that you cite from Jane Smiley mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, she wrote like, I believe that you either love the work or, um, it looks like I typed it wrong, but you love the well, life is a lot easier if you love the work essentially. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you wrote too, like, I hope if you got into this point in the book, like you realize that I love the work. 
And uh, I think that's so that's so important to underscore because that's the thing you can control. So how did yeah. you come come to just you know really learn to love the work and divorce that from those things you can't control? Yeah, I mean, uh, sometimes I'm better at than others, right? <laughs> I mean, like as, yeah. as we all are, of course, because you do want you do want the rewards too. Obviously, uh, everybody yeah. does, um, and so it's hard not to do that. But I, I, I think one of the things I think about a lot is that ninety percent of the like uh, sort of refusal of your work or rejection of work or censorship of your work probably happens like at your own desk. Like most of most of being told no is something people do before they get to an editor or an agent or a reviewer or a readership. Um, we, we don't do things we want to do. And I, I think, I, I think a lot about like, you know, so much of the process is for me and so much of the process is something only I experience that I should make it something that is enjoyable for me and fun for me. And, and, you know, the other stuff sort of, uh, will all work out. I also say like, I think that's mostly been true. Like the books I wrote because the way I wanted them to write or for my own reasons have, have turned out to be the things other people want, right? Or, or you're surprised to be like, there are other people who are interested in this, this, you know, weird way you see the world or connect with you, the things about you that are the most unique. It's a, a paradox to me that the universal is in the specific, you know, that you're sort of like the more deeply singular you, you go into your own thoughts and feelings and perceptions, the easier it is for other people to sort of connect to them. Maybe not everyone, but for like some people trying to aim to be acceptable as a, almost always fails actually it, you know oh for sure and i i think that's especially true for for memoir when mm, mm-hmm. you know and, and i and, and especially when you're lobbying let's say you know a, a parent or something that you're writing about and like they feel a little raw and naked by something you might be sharing and i've had this personal experience with that and i have like told my father about that you know about being you know, very specific, you know, he was just kind of took umbrage with a lot of things that I was writing true as they were or are. Uh, but I was just like, dad, you know, whenever, if a reader is picking this up, what'll happen if I've done my job well enough, you and I are going to be, we're going to kind of dissolve into the background. And then the mm-hmm. reader is going to kind of overlay their experience over us. And we're just going to be the mules carrying them through their own, their own yeah. psychic experience. And I, I think that it kind of gets to what you're saying. Like, you, the more specific you can be, as raw as that feels to the critical people involved, means that you know the reader can then transport themselves along with you. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, and I, I would say this does happen more reading uh, nonfiction for me than it does reading fiction. But I, I sometimes see that place where someone's like got the like details of a scene or an experience down in this precise unique sort of singular way and then they leap to the like acceptable common interpretation of those events or something right and it's like oh like the gap like you you like you you there's like a last second unwillingness to like claim the thing you actually felt and you go to this thing that you know will be okay to say or palatable to say or and i'm always uh disappointed obviously when that happens but it is an i get why that happens you know but it's interesting when someone has gathered the scene or the material in this like really raw way and then kind of papers over it with a a more acceptable or what you believe will be a more acceptable interpretation of it that feel ends up feeling kind of false that i wish they had stayed with the less friendly thing yeah, for sure. And then there are other times too where sometimes you can 
you'll have that really, really true scene that rings true. And then this could probably happen in, in fiction as well. But sometimes there's a tendency as the narrator to come in and kind of undercut right. and cut you off at the knees with a joke or just to take the reader out of it. Whereas you just yeah. it takes a lot of restraint. But sometimes you just got to let the scene do the heavy lifting and mm -hmm. get out of the way. Mm -hmm. Maybe in the early drafts, you can kind of explain things, but at the end, you'll be like, you know what? I really got to trust the reader here, even though I want to explain myself. Yeah. I just got to let the scene stay and let it talk. Yeah, I think that's, um, I mean, I think the what you said about the drafts is really part of it too. Like the explanation in an early draft is partly you explaining to yourself and you do have to do that work. I'm a writer, so we think by writing. And then you, the confusion is like these sentences you worked really hard on explaining it do not have to stay in the book. And yeah. they're hard to get rid of. I really see students do that novel drafting. They're just figuring out the world. So they're explaining. And so they're, the, their logic's in the way of me as a reader, but it's totally okay in a first draft. And so it's it's one of those like, I flag it, but I don't tell them to stop doing it, right? Because they, they do need to do it. Uh, my novels are full of explanations to myself in, in early drafts and hopefully very few of them in a final because um, you want to make room for that reader's experience set. And one thing I, I love about the book, uh, Refuse to Be Done, is how you know you balance you know your own experience with you know citing s dozens of other authors and sure. the, you know their approach to it which really just you know really um, you know makes your makes your process you know st stand out and very well could have written something and it wouldn't have been as good if you're just like this is how I do it sure. and yeah. you pulled in all those other voices so you know what was the the challenge for you in the the balance of striking is striking the balance between your process and also the process of all these other writers that we deeply admire yeah, I mean, I think uh, there was some adjustment of that balance as it went on. And I, I think, uh, you know, one of this is probably uh, teaching, you know, you talk about your own process inevitably and, and your own ideas, but uh, but it never hurts to have uh, an expert to rely on, right? Um, yeah. And I think sometimes being able to sort of give the idea in someone else's language is useful. Um, I think it, it helps make the book, to me even, as the writer, feel more conversational and more collaborative that it's not just you know that is sort of like we're all in this together we're all doing this thing feels like part of it and i think some of it's just being honest right like i mean i very few of my ideas about writing are like generated from scratch to the page right you know like they're they're hopefully i'm adding my own things and i'm bringing my own experiences but uh, but of course you know a lot of what i know i learned from other people directly or from, from reading and writing them. You know, I think a thing that changed in revising this book on revision was uh, maybe the proportion of examples from my own process went up a little bit. And I think uh, in the end, I'm really glad for that, to have some of those like, this is what happened to me while I was writing this book. This is how I did this while writing this book. Not because I expect the reader to have read all those, but, um, but sometimes it's just, it's nice to take it out of the abstract. You know, and to sort of uh, to sort of ground it in the experience of the person who's who's sharing, even if that's me. Yeah. Yeah. And as you as you alluded to, like, you know, bringing all these other voices, it means kind of like we're all in this together. And that gets at the heart of how important it is to have community in this and whether it's, you know, you're with your students and your classes and you're getting them to write up, write their own books, but writing sure. together, writing in community, you know, whether it's your great newsletter that you put out mm. every, every month or so, like it's in service of a community. So, you know, for you as, as a writer and an artist, how important is it for you to be, you know, a contributing member of uh, you know, of a community at large that yeah. kind of gets you out of your own head? 
Yeah, the getting out of your own head is a real part of it, right? I mean, that's yeah. definitely, for sure, part of the, the joy and the need. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I started writing uh, seriously in my early 20s when I was dropped out of college and uh, living in my parents' basement in rural Michigan, and it was not a writer-rich uh, environment. You know, my first communities were, were online and then, you know, university and in other places. I, I, I mean, I just wouldn't be here if I hadn't had those communities of people to talk to and to write with and to think with. And I, and I know how important that is. And I think before, before there was any reason to read me, you know, like why would anyone, I didn't have books, didn't have stories published, didn't have things to sort of talk about that way. And so I, I wrote about other people's books and I blogged about other people's books. And I, you know, and I think that sort of writing toward other people or about other people or for other people was a way of participating in the community that wasn't about me. And I think that's always felt very sustaining. The, the hardest part of being a community is the like, look at me, pay attention to me part. Like that's a drag, yeah. you know, um, yeah. you might have to do it. You may be contractually obligated to do it, but it's not actually the part <laughs> that's that enjoyable. But the part where you're bringing attention to other good people or you're supporting other good people or making opportunity for them, that's life-giving and feels really great. And so, um, I don't know, I find that very sustaining. Even when my work is going badly, the work I do for other people usually is going pretty well. And that feels exciting. Yeah. And, and sometimes, and by sometimes I almost mean most of the time, it can be yeah. hard to, um, you, you can start to get competitive and sometimes jealous, especially yeah. in this era of like social media and all this, you start seeing other, you know, very airbrushed versions of people's uh, work and their successes. And you're like, fuck, you're measuring that up against, right. you know, when you're in that trough, that messy middle, you're like, God damn it, this, this sucks. And there are, they're crushing. And then you start feeling like garbage and it's just this never ending downward spiral. So I wonder maybe like for you, like how, how have you handled, you know, those jealousy and those, the, that toxic feel, those toxic feelings that creep in um, and just process that be, uh, and turn it into something, uh, something more positive. I, you know, it, yes, all that, um, <laughs> comparison is like the thief of joy, right? I mean, like, it's oh, just yeah. like, it's the absolute worst oh. thing. I actually think like 90% of writer's block is comparison. You just like imagine other people are doing this better or easier or, or whatever. They're writing the right kind of book. You're writing the wrong kind of book, et cetera. But I, I think there's uh there's one practical thing, which is I try, if I'm feeling jealous to, to stop and turn that into like actual, like joy for the person um uh i i joked with a friend that like i will never see one of those publishers marketplace screenshots on twitter and not like it and share it like i'm just like right. you, you know no matter what it's like you know person x got two million dollar advance it's like good for you good and i am happy for you right um because it's not a zero-sum game and i think like one way to to discharge your envy is to actually be happy for other people when they succeed. So that that is part of it. And I think the other thing is sort of knowing that a lot of that doesn't really have to do with us. It doesn't have to do with the quality of the work that, um, you know, a lot of the things that happen when the book's published uh, make you feel sort of anxious or crazy, but the writing of the book does not. And so just like kind of keeping those things in their own spheres is good. I also spend a lot of time with other really smart other writers just by partly by teaching MFA students, and I've gotten a really good sort of first hand look at many students who I think are probably more raw talent than I have deal with being surrounded by other people of equal raw talent, uh, and then watching them be a, hurt by their imposter syndrome or hurt by comparing themselves to people or, and, um, and it's always easier to see what not to do in other people. And sometimes, you know, watching that and helping them with that has given me 
more clarity about my own, which is not to say that I have not made myself insane with sort of jealousy or envy <laughs> or comparison or whatever. Um, but, uh, but I think I'm much, much better at it than I was in the past, partly by recognizing when it's happening and that I could choose not to have it happen. Yeah. <laughs> it, it hit me hard in my early thirties, which yeah. would have been, you know, you know, you know, the early 2010s right around there. Mm-hmm. And, that because that's when social media was just starting to really mm-hmm. you know seep into the bloodstream and you know I was just really frustrated with where I was at just yeah you know, it just wasn't where I wanted to go I was being like all the people I admired seemed to be on this meteoric rise and I was like right. still had these menial day jobs that just weren't r- putting me in the right place mm-hmm. and, and I was just like god damn it like how are how did they get there? And I'm here. I know for sure that the people that I respect and revere, they weren't, you know, fit, tying people's running shoes and fitting them for running shoes as I right. was. And it was just like, I wasted so much energy and bandwidth worrying about that instead of just like meticulously getting better at yeah. the work. And I, I just, I sometimes wish I could have those years back, but, um, but you know, here we are, but that you, you live and learn with that. It's just, yeah. it's just such an energy that, that does not burn clean. Yeah, I think that's right. And of course, totally understandable, right? Like there's no like, you know, it was wrong to feel that way. Yeah, I graduated from my MFA in, in 2010. And a couple years ago, um, at an AWP, I had a lunch with uh, maybe like 10 people I went to school with who were the year, my year, the year before me, year after one of our professors. And it was the first time since we graduated where like, everybody had a couple books out or a book out, everybody had a job they more or less liked. And you could just feel how much calmer we were with each other, even, you know, like it was sort of like we all got the thing we were trying to get, you know, like it's good. We can be calm. And it it was different than the energy was five years ago when the gaps were bigger between people. And it was different than it was in grad school when we were like real hungry and wondering what people were going to (laughs) do, you know, and it did feel like we could just like be peers again because it, like it sort of worked out and it's sort of sad that that ever wasn't the case but it, it, there was a different energy to it that i've thought about a lot over the years in, in those early years when you were in your parents basement you know how did you you know what how did you process that that time to think uh, to think beyond that and not get you know to not get too you know weighed down by sure. by that I mean, in some ways, it's that I wasn't like I was aiming to be here then exactly, right? You know, I was just sort of, I think it was in some ways a little more in the moment, right? I was I was doing what I wanted to be doing. I was uh, reading and writing a lot and partying a lot and, and working hard, but like I was good at what I did and I, and I wasn't doing that. Didn't necessarily love living in my parents' basement, but you know, so it goes. And they didn't love me living there and so it goes as well. Um, but, uh, but it was okay and it wasn't like a long phase, you know? Um, there was a point, I think this has continued to serve me as well. Um, it serves me very well in academia, I think, where to make myself feel sort of okay about having dropped out of school and, and, and doing this job is I, you know, just thought like everybody, everybody has a job. It doesn't really matter what your job is. I always use two examples. They're not very good examples. I'm like, you could be the Pope or like a garbage collector. And like, either way, it's just like a, you're, you're a person with a job. And I'm like, I also am just a person with a job. I would just treat everyone well and I would expect them to treat me well. And, uh, and that serves you at a lot of different stages of life, you know, and, and I, I try not to spend a lot of time thinking about the way people are like positioned, you know, above or below me or whatever those things mean. And, you know, in the classroom, I try to teach my, treat my, uh, you know, students as fellow writers, right? We're, we're all writers, you know, the, the yeah. other stuff is sort of separate from that. And I think that thinking has done 
a lot of good in my life. Like you don't have to be intimidated by people because they have something you don't, and you certainly are not better than people because you have something they don't. And I think that uh, if you can hold that in your heart, you do a little better, which is again, does not mean it doesn't get messy <laughs> from time to time, but as a, as an ideal, as a goal, it's done a lot for me. There's a part of the book too. Uh, you say, you know, when in doubt, rewrite instead of revise. Mm. So like, how do you know what the difference is between those two? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, like, you know, maybe 90% of it's rewriting and a little bit of it's revising. Like mostly it's like a thing that's not made well is really hard to tinker into being a good thing. I mean, and I think that's what I thought it was when I was like first starting out, I read a bad story and then I would try to like move the commas until it was a good story, which was like not going to happen. Like that was not the problem with it. And I, I, I do think some of the frustration of, of, of a bad piece of writing can be undone by making it like you care about this thing. You love this thing you're trying to write, but it's turned out badly. Trying it again with the increased knowledge that you got from that try seems like a really smart way to proceed to me. You know, the first draft of something is something you wrote partly trying to figure out what it was and what it wanted to be and what the voice it was and what the opportunities in it were. And rewriting with all that knowledge tends to be really great. I, you know, for me, the the real big leap in my own novel writing process is when I somewhat by necessity figured out that I should uh, rewrite second drafts like kind of completely. Um, And the gain from that was so big. Like the second draft of In the House is so much better than the first draft that I wrote that I thought, well, I'm going to do this with everything I ever write. Like it just, you know, um, maybe one day I'll get one of those gift novels where you just like, uh, as I lay dying it and write it in six weeks while you're busy doing something else. And you're just like, cool, probably should get a Nobel prize for that. Um, but, uh, I don't know that has not been my experience. And so rewriting is partly the process because it pays off so well. Um, if I didn't have to do it, probably I wouldn't, but I don't know that I would, trust something I didn't rewrite at this point because the the leap is so big um, in that sort of second uh, version, especially. Yeah, the uh, I had inadvertently stumbled across uh, just through my own experience of um, retyping an entire yeah. draft. And uh, it was mainly because I was yeah doing, doing this memoir thing and it was like, I, I think I might have to novelize it. But as I was retyping mm. it, because I'm like, all right, let's just novelize it from... I had like the split right. screen thing, the thing that you write about. Yep. The thing is, I almost didn't change like any of the main story block elements. So it basically stayed a memoir. It, but I did retype the whole thing. And I was just like, wow, what a great exercise. Laborious as hell, yeah. but a great yes. exercise. Allison writes about it and you write about it too. Like maybe you can just speak to that experience. Daunting as it is, but how valuable it can be. Yeah, I mean, I think the the real value in it is that um, that it does force you to consider everything you've already done in this like really, in some ways, just mechanical, laborious way. Like you might copy and paste a bad sentence or a bad paragraph. You might let it sort of ride and hope no one notices, but you will get tired of retyping your bad scenes. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're yeah. like, I'm going to make these better or I'm going to quit um, because it's <laughs> miserable to retype bad prose. I also think like every novel the distance between the two is bigger. Like, you know, as writing Appleseed, there was a point where I just stopped being able to use anything from the, the first draft. It had diverged too much. And that happened, the novel right now, I'm in that sort of second draft phase. And it also is just like, it just becomes another book. And that prose kind of falls away. I was feeling as I'm doing this, you're seeing in my hands, your listeners won't be able to see, but thinking about like, 
the like booster rockets coming off a space shuttle or something. You just feel that oh, like yeah. payload go away. And I can, I can really, um, I like, that. like I don't need that anymore. I'm in space. It's good. Uh, and I really feel that difference. So, so I think, you know, again, it's sort of like the experience has been really good. Uh, it's interesting that uh, I know a lot of people who do it who sort of live and die by it and people who've never tried it feel really resistant to it. And I, f- I feel like that makes sense. Um, but I feel like anything's worth a try. None of this stuff is like the only way to do it. Like, I feel like you have nothing to lose either. If, if something's not good enough, why not try doing it again? Like, I mean, it's, there seems that there's no other than time, but you have a lot of time. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's worth doing. I also really do think that there is like, the brain you have when you're rewriting it is a different brain than you had when you wrote it. And so sees different things and notices different things and brings new things to the table. You know, if you're anyone who's writing a book right now who started it in 2019, started a book pre pandemic in the Trump era and is, you know, revising it in during the 2020 election and the pandemic and is now revising, rewriting still into, you know, this period of time, the novel I'm working on right now, I accidentally started the second draft rewrite of it on January 6th, which turned out mm. to be a weird day. And I hit like a big word milestone today, you know, as the, as the Ukraine invasion started and was like, you know, you just see these like a different person, like history is go- unfolding around you, your life is unfolding around you. And the person who's thinking through the problems of the draft in any particular day is not the same as the person who wrote the thing you're rewriting. And it actually turns out to be um, hugely advantageous for the work, I think. Mm. Yeah, and you write too about how n- novels can be sometimes weighed down by by a lot of backstory, and mm-hmm. this is especially true for nonfiction too. When you're sure. profiling people, like uh, there, you do a lot of this reporting and interviewing, and you're like, "Yeah, I gotta throw in all this, the, all this backstory." But you always have to be asking yourself, like, "Is this in service of forward propulsion?" Right. Um, so, how have you over the years when you um, when you feel like something is weighed down by too much of that backstory, start to parse some of that out in uh you know in oh. you know put the put the manuscript on a treadmill as it were yeah i i would say that i try to cut absolutely as much backstory as i can i'm, I'm pretty backstory um adverse most of the time in fiction especially like flashbacks and scene which i think just like creates such so much narrative drag that they're hard to justify most of the time mm. um but I, I do write a lot of backstory, and I think it's kind of like the explanation thing earlier. You're trying to get to know the character. You're trying to get to know the setting. You're trying to get to know things that happened in the past. So, you, And the best way for if you're a writer who thinks by writing like I am, you write stuff. Just today I was working on a, a, I had a lot of fun writing a backstory scene for something that happens like 300 years before like the timeline novel there is no way these scenes are going to be in the story like i'm inventing new characters so i can see Mm -hmm. this part of the history through them and i'm like no way no way this is part of the book but it's part of the writing of the book and it will be an invisible part of the experience of the book but believing that it needs to be there is probably a mistake and even as i'm writing it i sort of know that like i'm 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 exploring the novel and the world of the novel but that's different than everything I write has to go in the book. So the backstory right can be super important. And, and I mean, it's just the iceberg theory, really, right? You're yeah. writing the iceberg and later you throw away the iceberg, which we shouldn't do in real life, but in, in writing is good, <laughs> you know, more icebergs in real life, less on the page. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like when uh, when actors, they develop backstory for their character yeah, that's not absolutely. in the script and it helps them yeah. access, it helps animate uh, yeah. the actual things that's on, on camera, even though, you know, we 
we never know, but you know that you know having that pulse of the backstory helps you know inform inform that work, though the viewer never sees it. Is kind of the same yeah. principle. I I really feel that with. Um world building information sometimes, you know, in the kind of speculative work I do and you're, you're figuring something out of the world and you do all this writing about it and you can see it's like there, these 10 pages of exhibition cannot be in the novel. Um, and then, then you'll write a scene in which a character is clearly just acting as if they know all that. And they're, or they're like drawing on it in dialogue and you're like, Oh, this person now lives in a world in which people know all that. And I'll just go and cut it all out. It's like wonderful. But I, I had to write it to get to that place where, characters could act from the knowledge of it and it is really amazing to feel that like this is a person who knows that thing i spent all those pages dreaming up and now they no longer have to be in the actual book because they're in this character's like embodied experience inside the novel the novel's gone to it become immersive instead of expositional and i think like that turn is really a delight and it is it, hard to force but when it happens it sort of means that 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 exposition or that backstory is like sunk down to your level of like consciousness creation for characters uh um, oh. it's pretty cool oh i love that that's great well matt i want to be mindful of your time uh mm -hmm. this was wonderful to speak to you i i i so greatly admire this book you've written and it uh yeah it it's um making me really excited to get into uh the uh the the library of novels you've written so far. So um, I just want to, you know, thank you so much for hopping on the, hopping on the show, talking some shop, and I wish you the best of luck with this book. It's a wonderful book. Thank you so much, Brendan. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Alas, we've come to the end. Hey, Matt Bell, thank you. Thank you for coming on this podcast. Thanks for making it a smarter place to hang. The name of the book again is Refuse to Be Done. How to write a how to write and rewrite a novel in three drafts. It's published by Soho. Subscribe to the show so you don't even have to think about it. Automate that shit. We're everywhere, man. CNFers. The world around the world wide web. Uh, if you have a moment, leave a kind review. Apple Podcasts, the best place to leave a review, but you can leave ratings on Spotify as well. I'm not even sure why I keep recording these parting shots. I think uh, somewhere close to 0% listen to this far in any podcast, which is very demoralizing and dispiriting. The few analytics that I have are not promising, but I do it anyway. I guess I need to do it for myself if nobody else. Talking into this microphone, looking at a monitor, staring at the wall. A little pot of gold at the end of the CNF and Rainbow. We adopted a new dog. That's the intern I was referring to at the top of the show who um, grossly overestimated the amount of books Matt wrote. Uh, but it's close, but she was off by a few thousand. Uh, anyway, her name is Kevin. She's a German Shepherd mix. Uh, they say she's about 10 years old. She, If she is, in fact, 10, she's pretty damn spry for 10. It's very sweet. She's like a little deer. She's got a very doe-like face, very narrow face. Yeah, she's adorable. Yes, and of course she's going to have antlers come Christmas time. At first, Hank was like, this is bullshit. I had to reassure him that he's still the executive producer of the podcast and that Kevin is an intern for now. Uh, she gets us mud water for the king. Yes, I'm trying out mud water. It's got more in common with tea than coffee. It's got one-seventh the caffeine of coffee. 
and it's uh, it's more like a, a chai tea in a way. Got some mushroom stuff in there too. It's okay. I'm not crazy about the flavor, but I'm going to tinker with some ways to make it a little more tasty. It takes some getting used to. Trying to cut down on things that are making uh, my level of anxiety, which is by no means crippling, not as bad as some in the world, but probably more heightened than the average dog, than the average bear. And I'm doing a few things that I think heavily contributed to the heavy anxiety, which is uh, right now, this is what I'm doing to mitigate it, which is not drinking alcohol, uh, still meditating a lot, time blocking my planner and stuff so I don't context shift like crazy and I stay on point, take some decision fatigue out of the routine, and cutting back on caffeine is kind of the other thing. Not to mention the keeping up with the exercise you routinely do and then get trying to get a good solid, some solid sack time. I tell you, there's nothing better than waking up on a Saturday or a Sunday without a hangover or beer breath or, oh, isn't it nice that we didn't just spend $100 at the breweries this weekend? Yeah, the the good stuff is pretty spendy. And then you have a few of those and then you're like, yeah, those tater tots seem good. And then you eat those and you're like, wow, hummus plate sounds pretty cool too. And then you, you before you know it, you're going out of there with a growler and you drink that at home while you're watching School of Chocolate. And then before you know it, you're feeling like crap. And I just don't want to feel like crap anymore. All this is to say that we got a new dog. We Are we good? Okay. Stay wild, CNFers. And you know what I say. If you can't do interview, see ya.